0: Hello, my name is Ian Drake, and welcome to the New Books and Law podcast. I'm joined today by Sada Liu. He is the, an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Toronto and a faculty fellow at the American Bar Foundation. And he, along with his co author, Terence Halliday, who is co director at the Center on Law and Globalization, a research professor at the American Bar Foundation, honorary professor at the Australian National University and an adjunct professor of sociology at Northwestern University. The two of them have written a book that was originally published in 2016 entitled Criminal Defense in China, The Politics of Lawyers at Work. It's part of the Cambridge Studies in Law and Society. Welcome to New Books in Law podcast today.
1: Uh, thank you, yin
0: So you wrote this book based on, you said in the introduction that it's, um, uh, it took approximately 10 years to put this together. Why did it take so long? Uh,
1: yes, it uh, did take us uh, 10 years to complete. Uh, the reason it took uh, so long is because um, we started the project uh, as, uh, in 2005 uh, when I was still a graduate student at the University of Chicago. At that time, we were planning to do a study not just focus on criminal defense lawyers themselves, but also on a more macro topic about uh, China's criminal procedure reform because at that time uh, in the mid2000s uh, China was just started the process of uh, uh, re- reforming revising its criminal procedure law uh, which was completed uh, b- uh, by 2012. so at that time uh, we were, uh, so our first round of field work in 2005 uh, when my co-author Professor Halliday and I uh, went to China. We uh, did interviews in Beijing and in Xi'an uh, with us where the terracotta warriors are. Um, well, we did uh, more than 20 interviews, uh, mostly with lawmakers and uh, legal scholars and some lawyers and judges and prosecutors to hear their advice about uh, and their opinions about uh, the, the revision of the criminal procedure law. And only in the process of doing that, uh, we started to pay attention and uh, became more and more interested in the problems that criminal defense lawyers face in the criminal process. Because what we realized was that uh, criminal defense lawyers uh, were in a very disadvantaged position in the criminal process. They have uh, a, a lot of uh, constraints, but not enough rights to carry out even some very basic work like meeting uh, their clients or uh, collecting evidence. So uh, that's why uh, f- I think from uh, 2007 and 2008 we started to change the focus of our research. Uh, we uh, wrote a much bigger proposal because originally in 2005 we were thinking about just do a, a paper and uh, as a chapter of a, a edited volume that Professor Halliday and uh, was editing at that time uh, with uh, Professor uh, Lucian copy uh, in France and also Marco Feeley at Berkeley uh, on a uh, lawyers and political liberalism across the world. Uh, But after we finished that chapter, we decided we're going to do a more uh, complex and uh, larger scale project, just on focus on criminal defense lawyers in China, because uh, that's where you see from the work of criminal defense lawyers and from the way they mobilize politically, you can see a lot of dynamics of how the Chinese legal system and the state and the society interact. So that's why we uh, we wrote a proposal to the National Science Foundation. We were fortunate to get uh, funding support from the foundation and then uh, to develop into a much longer project. And uh, and after that, we, we did more than 10 rounds of fieldwork of uh, uh, flying to China almost every year uh, until 2015. And we also, there are different focus of our uh, uh, interviews in different rounds. Sometimes we went across the country to talk to ordinary practitioners. Some, sometimes we stay in Beijing, the capital to talk to a small group of humanized lawyers repeatedly. And so we, uh, we changed the focus and the strategy of our research over time. And also, uh, the Chinese legal profession also evolved uh, a lot. During those 10 years, we were doing research from 2005 to 2015, Uh, the number of lawyers increased uh, tremendously, uh, almost doubled, I think, during the uh, the period. And also there are more and more uh, interesting collective action strategies developed by these lawyers, which we discuss in the book.
0: So in short, what you're trying to do uh, with your new focus, uh, and this is what became your book, is you're trying to talk about or uh, reveal what is the actual practitioner life like for a Chinese criminal defense lawyer, right?
1: Yes, that's uh, really uh, one of the focus. Uh, focus. We have two uh, main focuses in the book. First is uh, work. Uh, second is politics. So the work part, really, we were just trying to understand uh, how cr- just ordinary any criminal defense lawyer in China do her work and what kind of uh, problems, issues that she, he or she would face in the everyday work. For example, the difficulties in uh, you know, in the Chinese legal profession, people call them uh, two, three difficulties, meaning the difficulties in meeting suspects, uh, the difficulty in uh, collecting evidence, and the difficulties in getting access to the prosecutor's case files. So that I means just some, some of the very basic things, uh, the way they do their work, The kind of uh, problems they encounter in their work and how that reflects the power imbalance between defense lawyers and the much more powerful uh, police uh, procurators and the judges in the criminal justice system.
0: Okay, so informing your body of evidence, um, you are interviewing most of these lawyers um, uh, privately. In other words, they're not going to be revealed um, by name.
1: Uh, of course not. And right. that's the basic uh, research ethics. So uh, uh, like all the social science studies, uh, we, we pass the uh, ethic review. So we, uh, when we go to the field site, we get consent from these lawyers. Uh, we will interview them. Uh, but, you know, uh, like in the United States, uh, a lot of uh, social scientists go out for interviews, record the conversation, right? keep the recording and uh, transcribe them. Uh, And then, you know, there you can uh, use pseudonyms and other things to protect the identity of the uh, informants. Uh, In our case, because um, China is authoritarian regime and uh, not all lawyers in China are in danger. uh, But uh, some of the criminal defense lawyers, especially those lawyers who do rights oriented work, especially human rights related work, uh, they could be uh, in serious jeopardy uh, just by talking to a a foreigner or somebody uh, affiliated with a foreign institution. I'm a Chinese citizen, but I'm affiliated with, at that time, you know, Wisconsin. So um, so, so, that's very sensitive. So because of that, we never recorded a single interview. In our, uh, we did more than, two, uh, Professor Hallett and I did more than 200 interviews personally, uh, ourselves, and, but we never recorded an interview. W- what we do is that we will go to, a lawyer's office, sometimes in you know coffee shops, but mostly in lawyers' offices. and uh, we will sit down with the lawyers, explain our research and ask for their consent, but we only take notes using a computer. So the way we do it that uh, is that Professor Halliday will uh, we design all the questions together, he will re- ask the question in English, I will ask uh, the same question again in Chinese, and then the lawyers will answer the question, I will translate back to, into English. And uh, my collaborator, Professor Halliday, will take notes. So this way, we make sure that, uh, you know, we record the conversation fairly, uh, uh, precisely, but we we do not keep any recording from the interview for their protection. And of course, if you read the book, you will see that we, uh, of course, we never review the name of any lawyer we interviewed. Uh, We don't even talk about the law firms they're affiliated with. We only talk about, like, which province they're from. Uh, not even uh, not even which city or you know what kind of practice because uh, uh, just for their protection. This is the ethical requirement for social science research.
0: So you begin the book with a reference to a case from two thousand nine that you use as a marker for um, concerns regarding crackdowns by the Chinese government on lawyers. It's the Li Zhuang case. Yes, Am I pronouncing that correctly?
1: Yes, very precisely.
0: Okay. And so can you explain that case and why it was important?
1: Yes. We began the book with that case because, uh, from my point of view, uh, the Zhong case really is uh, a watershed event, a, a important turning point in the history of Chinese uh, lawyers. Uh, because before 2009, when this case happened... Uh, there were, uh, you know, occasional mobilization of Chinese lawyers uh, politically. You know, they're very brave, humorized lawyers like Gao Zhisheng, you know, uh, uh, Chen Guangcheng. There's some lawyers reported in the New York Times and uh, international media. But most of their actions were uh, isolated uh, and uh, individual. They were not really uh, large-scale collective action. And also at the same time, There are some lawyers doing political work, doing uh, human rights work, but they were considered uh, really the marginal uh, members of the legal profession. The vast majority of Chinese lawyers, uh, up until the Li Zhuang case in 2009, they didn't feel like their practice was connected to these uh, human rights lawyers, or in China, China we call them Weichan lawyers. Weichan means rights protection, basically those rights-oriented lawyers. Um, they they were kind of uh, disconnected from the rest of the profession and they were heavily repressed by the state. Um, But the Li Zhuang case was a very interesting case because uh, this is a case in which Li Zhuang was a lawyer. Um, He was a a senior partner in Kangda Law Firm, which is a very elite law firm in Beijing in the capital. Uh, So um, he is a... Not the most famous criminal defense lawyer in China, but he's very well known and uh, he's also uh, quite successful in his career. But he never really was a humorized uh, lawyer or do any politically sensitive work. So, in this case, uh, he, in 2009, uh, he went to Chongqing, which is a city in the southwest, uh, to defend for a private entrepreneur who were uh, arrested and then charged with uh, uh, organized crime activities. Uh, there was a background in the political background of the case is that because at that time, Chongqing, the city, was under the rule of Bo Xilai, who used to be the minister Minister of Commerce uh, uh, in China. So uh, he really started a campaign, a very harsh campaign against uh, o- uh, what he calls organized crime, but really uh, the private sector in the city to arrest a lot of private entrepreneurs uh, and charge them uh, uh, for various kind of criminal activities. So uh, there was there was a very controversial uh, political campaign going on at that time. Because of that, uh, when Li Zhuang went to Chongqing uh, as to defend for the for this businessman, uh, very quickly he he himself was actually arrested by the police, by the local police, and uh, he was charged uh, for the crime uh, the crime of lawyer perjury. Uh, it's a Article three o six of the China's uh, criminal law. Uh, that makes, uh, you know, if a lawyer fabricate evidence or help uh, induce witnesses to give false testimony, that's a crime called the crime of lawyers perjury. So Li Zhuang was charged with that crime. Uh, And the ironic thing is that uh, Li Zhuang was actually put on trial uh, in the Chongqing court, even before his client, the businessman was uh, put on trial. So that generated a lot of uh, repercussions. Uh, in the Chinese legal profession, but also in the broader uh, Chinese public. Uh, because, I mean, Li Zhang was not the first lawyer who were charged with this crime, uh, lawyer's perjury. Um, before him, there were already, you know, at least 100, uh, probably more, uh, more than 100 uh, Chinese lawyers charged with the same crime. And s- most of them were uh, eventually uh, declared uh, not guilty, but some of them served sentences. And uh, a lot of Chinese lawyers are deeply resentful uh, of this crime because it almost, you know, in practice became a uh, instrument for the uh, procurators and the police to make revenge on the lawyers who uh, dare to uh, challenge their prosecution and challenge their evidences because uh, they can always say, oh, oh my evidence was uh, adopted by the court. So look, uh, the evidence lawyer presented was actually Uh, fabricated evidence, so lawyer can be charged with this crime. So there's an abuse of power associated with this crime. And, but when Li Zhuang was charged uh, because of the political background uh, uh, um, of the case, but also because of his uh, status as a senior partner in the AD Beijing firm. So they generated a lot of uh, attention. Uh, to the case, and the case itself was also quite dramatic uh, because the defendant Li Zhuang, he was a he was a lawyer, so he was uh, very defiant in the first trial. Uh, uh, there were a lot of courtroom drama going on at that time. And but in the second uh, trial, after he was sentenced guilty uh, for the uh, in the first trial, he appealed, and then in the appeal, he actually uh, uh, admitted to his crime, uh, and there were some kind of a. Uh, under the table of pre bargaining going on uh, uh, around that case. But he also, he made a confession, but if you put the uh, first letter of his, compa- uh, of his uh, uh, confession of each paragraph together, it's actually a hidden point. He was saying, I was forced to confess, and then I would uh, definitely appeal when I uh, get out of prison. So there were a lot of drama around that case. So it generated a lot of attention, uh, but also generated a lot of uh, support from other lawyers, because this is the first time, it's almost like a wake-up call. Um, the, almost the vast majority, I think, of Chinese lawyers at that time, you know, not only aware of this case, but also realize that if a senior partner of an elite Beijing firm can be just arrested and arrested and charged like this. Um, for not even taking the evidence. I mean, there was a lot of procedural problems related to, uh, to the case. And they, they realized that if that can happen to Li Zhuang, that can happen to them as well. So in other words, nobody is safe. If, as long as you practice criminal defense, uh, there's always a possibility you will be uh, suffer the same fate. So that's an important turning point because uh, before that case, as I said, um those lawyers who do rights-oriented work, do human work, almost disconnected from the rest of the profession. They just do their own thing. They were uh, harshly repressed by the state. But after the Li Zhuang case, you start to see their series of cases from 2011 uh, to 2015, when the uh, big crackdown on human rights lawyers happened, uh, which we wrote about uh, in Chapter 7 of the book. Um, during that period, you start to see lawyers all over China coming together, sometimes using social media, uh, uh, have, you know, collective action, uh, in court, also on the street and also on the internet, uh, you know, doing things collectively. So this is why the case, uh, was a watershed event. And that's why we put it uh, up front at the, uh, in the preface of the book.
0: And I want to talk about the role of social media in a little bit, but, um, in order to understand some of the historical background before we, uh, get to the, uh, 2009 period and thereafter, um. It was striking to go back to the uh, beginning of the Chinese communist regime in 1949 from 1949 through uh, for the next 30 years to 1979, uh, you had noted there is essentially no formal criminal procedural law in China. And so I want to uh, investigate some of that, bri- briefly investigate some of that historical background to uh, bring us up to today. So can you explain this 19, post-1949 period and what happens in 79 and then later in the 1990s?
1: Yes. So uh, because 1949 was the time the Chinese Communist Party took power, right, from the Nationalists or the KMT, right, w- which retreated to Taiwan. Um, so after 1949, all the uh, Republican period uh, laws were abolished by the Communist Party. So in other words, all the criminal law, criminal procedural law, and other uh, uh, codes uh, in the Republican period were, were gone. So uh, in the 1950s, uh, there were some effort um, by the new regime, they tried to uh, make their own criminal law and criminal procedural law, uh, mostly modeling after the Soviet law, because at that time, the Chinese Communist Party was uh, learning a lot from the Soviet Union. Um, but uh, So there was a draft, I think, in, 19, in the 1950s uh, of the Criminal Procedure Law, but it was only a draft. It never really passed the legislature. Um, and soon after that, of course, there are all kinds of political uh, campaigns and upheavals. As for example, the um, anti-rightist campaign, the uh, Great Leap Forward, and eventually the Cultural Revolution, which lasted uh, from 19, mid-1960s to the mid-1970s, uh, totally devastated uh, China's uh, legal system during the Cultural Revolution. Um, even courts and uh, uh, you know procuracies and police uh, stations were were uh, were gone. You know they, they all collapsed for, for a while. Even the military, the army, has to step uh, step up uh, to maintain social order. And as for as for lawyers, um, lawyers were uh, were there in the 1950s until 1957. Uh, In the first eight years of the People's Republic of China, uh, lawyers were permitted, uh, but a lot of the Republican uh, lawyers were reformed, and some of them stopped practice, some of them still practice, and there are some uh, new lawyers uh, studying Soviet law and then became lawyers. But very quickly, uh, uh, within 10 years of the uh, People's Republic of China, uh, in 1957, um, the government started the Anti-Rightist Campaign, uh, which uh, to Attack the so-called writers, writers uh, 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 in the country, and unfortunately, lawyers as an occupation uh, was labeled writers. Uh, so they, so after 1957, lawyers as a profession were were basically abolished. Uh, so from 1957 to 1980, when uh, the system of lawyers were re- uh, revived in China for more than uh, 20 years, there were no lawyer uh, practicing in China. And during the Cultural Revolution, as I said, there were even the court uh, system, uh, judicial system collapsed. So after the Cultural Revolution ended in 1976, um, I think the new leadership, uh, especially after Deng Xiaoping came to power in 1978, uh, he and uh, some other central leaders at that time, uh, many of them suffered actually greatly uh, personally during the Cultural Revolution. So they started to reflect on the importance of law and the legal system for the Chinese uh, political system, but also for the economic reform, most importantly. So they decided uh, to rebuild the legal system, including the profession of lawyers. So uh, in that background, in 1979, uh, that was the year uh, China's first criminal procedural law, but also first criminal law uh, was actually passed. Um, and the year after 1980, the legal profession was revived. So it was a very interesting history so from 1949 to 1979 for 30 years china had no criminal code and no criminal procedure code so you might be wondering then how would uh you know cases be tried right so if somebody commit a crime somebody murder somebody or you know uh, uh, have robbery all these things uh, how to decide on these cases and the answer is mostly these things were decided uh, by the court or during the culture even by the police and without any legal code, mostly based on the uh, interpretations, opinions uh, of the uh, of the judicial system, within the judicial system, without any code, uh, which is uh, very, uh, I can't say unique, but a very unusual uh, part of the criminal justice history uh, anywhere in the world.
0: And so were there procedures? This is kind of an aside, and I know it's not the main concern of your book, but during this period, prior to 1979, whether it was during the cultural revolution or even before in the fifties and sixties did uh, were you say it's the police that are the focal point. Um, is it, I mean, is this just essentially ad hoc summary justice without any kind of record keeping or do they keep records and are there procedures at all, even if they're not actual formalized rules?
1: Um, there, as I said, there are very few formalized rules, but, uh, it's not like, uh, Uh, There's no record. I mean, a lot of people died without record, Uh, it's true, but uh, I think uh, it depends. If you go to the local level police, uh, there are some uh, uh, places, there are fairly detailed record keeping. For example, uh, William Hurst, uh, a professor of political science at Northwestern, actually uh, has written about uh, some of the police uh, cases. Uh, In uh, Jiangxi Province in uh, South China, actually, uh, you can see that the police was actually keeping fairly uh, detailed records of the period. And as to whether uh, there are uh, kind of standard uh, procedures they follow, uh, I I'm actually not entirely sure if there's uh, to what extent they actually follow the same procedures uh, um, across the country. I think they're probably locally, they follow similar procedures, but nationally there were no really uniform, uh, procedural law. Or procedure sure.
0: Code. Well, I'm sure it probably varied from place to place. Okay. So with that historical background in mind, we, we, we normally think of 1979 associated with China as the opening of the market reforms that Deng Xiaoping, uh, instituted, but Uh, This is – there's no – it is not a coincidence that, of course, the legal reforms are happening. So this is really a top-down reform, Um, and you indicated that – in the book, you and your co-author indicated that this is essentially a concern for um, not only economic development um, but also for order and having some type of procedure uh, for all types of crimes. And so this really opens the way for experts, meaning lawyers – to play a role in the justice system now, right?
1: Exactly, so uh, that was the, I think the, when the legal profession was revived in 1980, uh, when the procedural laws were made in 1979, the idea is as exactly as you said, uh, as you said, uh, is to maintain order, but also pr- uh, promote economic uh, development. And for the uh, criminal side, for criminal defense lawyers, it's of course more about maintaining order rather than facilitating the economy. Um, so in terms of that, uh, lawyers were revived. But I have to say that uh, it was not until 1996 that's when the first time the criminal procedure law was uh, revised in China. Um, from 1979 to 1996, uh, the law itself uh, gave very little uh, rights, uh, capacities for lawyers to actually uh, to mount a rigorous defense. Because... Uh, until 1999, um, if you were a criminal defense lawyer in China, for example, in the 80s, um, and if you defend for criminal defense uh, for a criminal case, you were only given seven days before the trial to prepare uh, your defense. So, so in other words, uh, you can only a lawyer can only step into the criminal process seven days before the the trial opened. So imagine uh, how much work uh, you can do in seven days, right? So mostly. I think in the 1980s um Chinese lawyer who do who did criminal uh, work uh, mostly they they take very little evidence they just mostly meet with the uh, defendant maybe a f- uh, once or a few times sometimes don't even meet the defendant at all they will just read the uh, prosecution's case files and then uh, prepare defense uh, for the for the court argument
0: and so, in nineteen ninety six uh, these are seen as in on, in one sense they are reforms, but as you note the many of the what we would think of as abuses by the state still occur even after nineteen ninety six um, These are things like long detentions and torture um. And it supposedly strengthened the rights of criminal defendants, but you note that even – and I was surprised at this – even 70 percent of trials actually occur without an attorney.
1: Yeah, that's uh, still the case even today. Today, if you look at the Mm -hmm. uh, percentage of criminal cases in China with lawyer representation, it's about that percentage. And nobody have the precise number because a lot of cases were not really uh, the record were not public. But uh, I've seen uh, different scholars um, uh, study this locally, and mostly the number is you know in the range of twenty to thirty percent the criminal uh, representation rate. And a reason for that, I think, is the um, precisely as you said, the the, the rise of lawyers uh, has never been fully extended. Uh, to the entire criminal process until the uh, 2012 revision, the most recent revision, which is only five, five or six years ago. Um, so after 1996, um, what happened is that because uh, this is the one argument, important argument we made uh, in uh, in the book, especially chapter two, uh, we call it the recursivity of uh, legal change. So the idea is that um, you know you cannot expect uh, legal reforms like the revision of the criminal procedure law to happen in a linear fashion. For example, the 79, there's a criminal procedure. Oh, 96 is a big step forward. And then 2012 is another big step forward. So it always always happens in a recursive manner in the sense that there are always sometimes two step forward, one step back. Or one step forward, two step back. So because every uh, round of uh, uh, law reform is a, is a matter of uh, political struggle, you know, among the... Uh, people with different interests and different power uh, in the process. So take uh, 1996 uh, procedural law revision as an example. Uh, At that time, um, lawyers actually didn't even participate in the lawmaking process. I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, the National People's Congress held many uh, meetings, symposiums, to hear all kinds of expert opinions uh, about the revision. But lawyers, because bar associations were fairly uh, new and weak, at that time, so mostly uh, there, there was a, a Minister of Public Security, which is the police, the Supreme People's Procuracy, which is the prosecutors, and the Supreme People's Court, and the Minister of Justice, which supposedly to represent the interests of lawyers, but not really, uh, and some legal scholars. They participate in the voting process. So, um, of course, there many legal scholars were really allies of lawyers. They want to expand lawyers' right to make sure that lawyers have the opportunity to fully protect the rights of the defendants, but. Every proposal they make, they have uh, resistance from the police, from the prosecutors, uh, very you know, understandably. So, so a lot of compromises were made uh, in the uh, lawmaking process. To give you a, a concrete example, um, I think the first draft of the 1996 criminal procedure law uh, made by a group of scholars at the uh, China University of Political Science and Law, which is a major law school in Beijing, uh, has more than 300 articles. And then the eventual, uh, after all the uh, all the debates, all the discussions, compromises, the eventual uh, final version of the Criminal Procedure Law in '96 has only 225 articles. So one third of the articles in the st- scholarly draft were gone, not because those are bad articles, not because the sc- uh, legal scholar didn't you know think them through, but because um, some of the judicial agencies and law enforcement agencies didn't like some of the articles. So Jesus took them, took those out. And that, of course, leaves, uh, left many uh, uh, ambiguous and uh, indeterminate uh, elements, uh, components in the law itself. Actually, even the, uh, the crime of lawyer perjury was a co- uh, result of the compromise because it was not there in the 80s. Uh, only in 96, the criminal procedure law reform and the uh, 1997 criminal uh, law reform uh, they added this crime of lawyers perjury. I think one reason they added that uh, one of our informants told us was because uh, the police was were really not very happy about uh, lawyers used to have only seven days to you know pr- prepare defense now they have uh, much longer. so because of that, they said, you know if lawyers can get into the process much earlier, then we should uh, you know prevent lawyers from fabricating evidence from uh, uh, inducing witnesses to give false testimony so that was the background of this and that leads to all the lawyer persecution cases including the Li Zhuang case in 2009.
0: right so with the 1996 reform what you get is one hand on the one hand you lawyers are given and their clients i guess are also given greater protections these are formal protections under this criminal law code but then this and this is uh the 1996 law this section 306 big stick 306 as it's colloquially referred to is the section on lawyers perjury and all of a sudden that becomes uh, the where the other hand draws back and still allows this leeway on the part of the police to essentially harass and oppress lawyers that are actually trying to do their job under the new rules right
1: yes exactly so uh, oh I, I want to clarify the article 306 is in the 197 criminal law. But it's the same content as the Article Thirty Eight, I think, in the Criminal Procedure Law in uh, Ninety Six. So, so basically, uh, back to back, two articles, um, basically establishes law, a crime of lawyers perjury, uh, and because of that, uh, it was very effective. Actually, uh, after Ninety Seven, after this was written into the Criminal Code, uh, within five years, uh, the All China Lawyer Association, which is the equivalent of the American Bar Association here, uh, uh, has some statistics statistics, the first five years after 97 after this crime was established, the so-called big stick 306, uh, there were already uh, at least 100 lawyers uh, were detained or sometimes prosecuted, sometimes uh, uh, even sentenced to prison because of this crime as a, a police retaliation about lawyers. Um, and some of our informants told us uh, you know, when the 96 uh, and 97 uh, criminal procedural law criminal law was first revised, Lawyers were very happy. They said, you know, we have more rights. We can actually uh, uh, collect evidence. We can meet suspects. We can do a lot of things, um, uh, a lot more than before. And the police officers and the procurators, they were nervous. But very soon, you know, within half a year, the moods completely changed because the police realized if they want to make revenge, retaliate uh, on any lawyers, uh, there's this uh, very powerful tool they can use. Uh, Whereas lawyers realized, although they were given... Uh, all these procedural rights on paper, if they actually want to use it, the risk uh, is huge.
0: Right. And as one of your uh, interviewees said, and this is a quote from page 42, he says, we cannot rely on the law only. It is only a piece of paper. We have to rely on a system, but the Chinese system allows torture to exist. Exactly.
1: So it's really, um, this is actually one of the, fundamental uh, insights of uh, law and society research. Both Professor Han and I uh, are law and society uh, scholars. We really uh, think it's not the law on the books, the black letter law that makes a difference in the actual practice. It's really, you have to, you want to understand how lawyers do their work. Uh, You know, you have to look at the so-called law in action. In other words, how law actually functions in practice. And how law functions in practice Always, there are people uh, involved, and there, there are people with uh, limited resources, with their own interests, and with different kind of uh, power dynamics. So uh, it's just unfortunate that in the case of uh, the Chinese legal system, lawyers happen to be the less powerful uh, player uh, actor in the whole uh, criminal justice system.
0: Sure, and this point is much easier to make, of course, in an authoritarian yes. system. Um, so the what you refer to as kind of an iron triangle of the police, procuracy, and the courts. Um, now, f- for our listeners who may not be f- familiar with the procurate system or procuracy system, can you explain what role that is and how it's different from the Anglo-American system?
1: Um, the pro- procuratorial system uh, is uh, very common in civil law jurisdictions or the continental law jurisdictions. Um, mostly in uh, continental Europe, uh, East Asia, and uh, part of Latin America. Uh, so um, the procurators uh, are more powerful actors than the prosecutors in the United States or in the Anglo-American system because, um, for example, in the Chinese system, the procurators uh, not only just uh, do prosecution, uh, they also have, have uh, power of supervision. They can supervise the work of the police. They can also supervise the work of the court. So in the 80s, for example, in the 1980s, um, if you go to a criminal trial in China, you often find the, the judge and the procurator actually sit side by side up there, and the lawyer actually sit, uh, you know, together with the defendant. So it's really a, it's, that shows you the status of the uh, procurator. So it's really not a kind of a, uh, equal uh, um, uh, balance between the criminal defense lawyer and the procurator. So that's uh, one part of it. Another part is that uh, in all the continental law countries, uh, including China, uh, the procuracy actually uh, bear a much larger role of uh, finding out whether or not uh, the, the criminal suspect and the defendant is guilty. Because uh, if you look at the conviction rate uh, in China, is extremely high. It's probably definitely higher than 99%, probably 99.9%. Uh, but if you look at other continental countries like Japan, uh, Japan is probably around 99% conviction rate. If you look at France, uh, it's at least 95%. So the reason for that is because in this system, uh, almost the vast majority of cases actually reach the court. You're, you can There's a very high likelihood that it will be a conviction. you will be a guilty uh, uh, sentence because uh, before the case reached the court, the Police and the procur- uh, procurators already uh, did a lot of investigation, did a lot of uh, inquiry to make sure that you know cases that are actually uh, problematic uh, were screened out of the system. So in that uh, in that sense, the pro- uh, procuracy in the uh, Chinese criminal justice system, as many other continental uh, justice system, bears a much bigger responsibility in the criminal process than. Uh, definitely than the criminal defense lawyer, sometimes even a bigger uh, uh, responsibility than the judge.
0: But of course in the Japanese system, you've got the obligation upon the state that if they don't think that the criminal uh, or the defendant, the accused has actually committed the crime, it's not uh, merely an obligation as in say the American system where you've got this prosecutor's obligation to reveal exculpatory evidence, but you're not as the prosecutor even supposed to bring the case against the defendant if you uh, have doubts about the crime right and and that's the but it would seem to me that are, are those same ethical constraints really affecting the procurators in China as they would in Japan
1: um i think the difference is this that as i said the reason we call the police procuracy and the court iron triangle in china is because In the Chinese system, these three agencies are not independent. Uh, Rather, they, they all under, obviously under the leadership of the Communist Party, but also under the leadership more specifically of a party committee called the Political Legal Committee, uh, which supervised the work of all these uh, three agencies. So that's why um, they, you know, supposedly they should check and balance uh, each other's work. As, as I said, the procuracy should supervise the work of the police, supervise the, work of the court. But in actual practice, they almost like uh, operate like a factory, like three shops in the same uh, factory. Um, there's even a joke uh, in, in China, say, if you look at the criminal pro- uh, process in China, the police are the, the chefs. They cook the dishes. And the procurators they will bring the they are the waiters they bring the dishes to the table and the judges only eat the dishes in other words when the when the judges see the case case file is already pretty much cooked um so that's that's the i think the difference between china and many other continental uh, jurisdictions like Japan like france so uh, because the court there's very little judicial independence so the court are not really in the uh, in the position to often to you know, to declare uh, a, a defendant innocent or to um, to uh, argue or, or to uh, make decisions against the, uh, the prosecution. So that's very rare. And
0: so the and to include within the same analogy, the defense attorneys, they also have to eat the dish, too, don't they?
1: Exactly. They were just uh, sitting by the judge eating the same dish <laughs> that's already cooked. There very little they can actually put into the dish.
0: And so it, um, I know that one of your concerns and one of your original concerns is uh, political rights and um, individual liberty in terms of political cases. But it seems to me that this, this permeates out into all types of, of criminal defense work, even stuff that's not necessarily very visible or salient um, in terms of political importance because – Um, if, if you can bear with me just one moment on page 51, you quote one of your, um, uh, lawyers that you interview from Shandong province and they say meeting suspects is very difficult in the investigation phase. Usually the lawyer can only meet the suspect once and is not allowed to ask about the content of the case. Just telling the suspect some legal rights in the phase of the procuracy's prosecution, the lawyer can see the case files, but usually only the procedural evidence and materials Only when the case reaches the trial phase is it possible for the lawyer to touch on the substantive evidence and materials. Moreover, in terms of collecting evidence, the lawyer's rights cannot be guaranteed. So to protect ourselves and to prevent additional problems, lawyers often do not collect evidence. Also, the lawyer's defense opinions are not useful. After the police and procuracy have gone through the case, it is more or less decided, and the role of the lawyer is limited only providing some opinions on the reduction of the sentence i usually i meaning the lawyer that you're interviewing usually do not collect evidence Perhaps I only do so in 1% of my cases. When I read that, I was stunned at how seemingly innocuous the defense lawyer's role is if this is representative of how uh, defense attorneys actually have to practice. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, it is very surprising, I think, uh, for many outsiders. But uh, I think for most people familiar with the Chinese criminal justice system, this is very typical. I can't say it's 100% representative, but it's very typical uh, because many criminal defense lawyers, not because they, they're not trying to do their job, they're not uh, good lawyers, so it's because they they face so, ma- so much difficulty and risk when they actually go out to collect evidence. Like they could be charged with the, this crime of lawyers perjury, for example. There are also many other uh, obstacles out there. So as a result, um, precisely uh, to answer your question about the, the, the meaning of politics, I think one argument we... Uh, really want to make in the book um, is that you know to understand lawyers' politics is not just to focus on a small group of human lawyers doing highly sensitive cases. Of course, these are important cases. These are important lawyers. They're uh, sometimes very brave doing heroic work. But it's also more important to realize that politics actually lies in everyday work. And if even if you're just an ordinary practitioner, like uh, we have four categories of lawyers. Uh, one of them, we call them routine practitioner, which is the majority of criminal defense lawyers. And even for them, I think, you know, in their everyday work, they in- encounter all these problems. And that also is a source of political mobilization. That's why the cases like the Li Zhuang case in 2009, where you talked about earlier, could generate such a big impact on the entire legal profession, because it. It's, it is really about everyday work. It is not about, it's not a politically sensitive case. It's not a, a human case. It's a, just an ordinary case, a lawyer defending for a businessman, but the lawyer can get into trouble and and can face all these problems. So really, um, I mean, the lawyers have different, uh, of course, uh, reactions to this problem. Some lawyer would just uh, hands off, you know, retreat from doing criminal defense work or just just like the Shandong lawyer you, uh, you you just mentioned, would do very little, you know, as a strategy of self-protection. But there are also many other lawyers, they were not happy about it. They will mobilize individually and collectively to try to challenge uh, the arbitrary state power, try to fight for even a little more rights uh, for their own defense.
0: Now... Um... Uh, to bring it up to uh, the current period uh, since 2009 in the Li Zhuang case, um, the, it seems to me that one of the um, unifying concerns, uh, and this is even before Xi Jinping comes into power um, and his anti-corruption and consolidation of power occurs, uh, you've, you've got the presence of social media and the internet mm-hmm. that seems to be a real tool uh, for these lawyers to use. And so can you explain how, uh, I think we're all familiar with how the internet of course, uh, can allow people to communicate who otherwise would lack any ability to, but w- w- how has this been utilized by lawyers in terms of apps and particular websites?
1: This is a very, uh, interesting development. Uh, to me, one of the most fascinating developments, uh, if you look at the, um, uh, the history of uh, Chinese lawyers, especially the political mobilization of Chinese lawyers, because uh, just in the Li Zhuang case itself, because Li Zhuang, if you read chapter six of the book, you, uh, you will see that he was charged twice, once in 2009, and, and the trial happened in, uh, in 2010, and then the second time in 2011. So that was exactly the period uh, when the social media in China started to uh, to boom, to become really popular, because um, in before 2000 and I would say 2010, 2011, uh, a lot of Chinese lawyers use blogs and they also use online forums. The bulletin board system, online forums, they discuss things. But there are limitations to these kind of uh, um, forums and blogs because uh, blogs, uh, by nature, is it's a very individualistic thing. You know, you post things on your own blog. Other people can comment, but it's not interactive, right? So b- blog posts. When the Li Zhuang trial first happened, a lot of lawyers posted uh, essays, you know, supporting uh, Li Zhuang, supporting uh, his defense counsel. Uh, But they were just articles, essays, just, you know, posted on the Internet. People can read, people can comment on. But it didn't lead to uh, any large scale collective action uh, behind the case and also at that time there were you know online forums people would uh, post comments but uh, a lot of these forums uh, are you know you can use pseudonyms or uh, being anonymous and still post comments so that that also didn't uh, do very much in terms of collective action but when Li Zhuang was tried the second time he was charged the second time uh, in 2011 that was exactly the same time when weibo which is a chinese equivalent for twitter uh, because Twitter, Facebook, all these social, uh, foreign social media uh, apps, most of them were banned uh, from China, were blocked. But at the same time, China developed its own equivalents. Uh, Weibo is basically the equivalent of Twitter. And it's actually more, even more popular than Twitter. Uh, for example, uh, you know, it's, it's not uncommon, I think, uh, for uh, very active Chinese lawyers on the Internet to have half a million or even a million followers. I mean, the uh, one of the Chinese uh, lawyers I know, uh, who's doing a lot of public interest work, has thirty million followers on Weibo. Uh, first, you know, partially because China is a very populous country, but also uh, because uh, Weibo was getting extremely popular uh, from 20 around 2010 2011 to uh, about 2013 2014 uh, in that period. Um. So when the Li case, uh. He was charged for the second time. Weibo was very popular. So, a lot of lawyers uh, actually use Weibo to, it's a Twitter like uh, social uh, media uh, uh, format, uh, so a platform. So, uh, enable lawyers to actually talk to each other, Uh, do several things. First, they can uh, distribute information very, very quickly. So, if something happened in the case, for example, Li Zhuang was uh, prosecuted or his distance council was uh, confirmed. You know, somebody can post a message, and then instantly, uh, you know, a lot thousands or even millions of people can uh, can see it. Um, but on the other hand, also it enabled many lawyers uh, from across China, which is a, a very big country, um, who didn't know each other, and but they all used their real names when they register uh, for, for, for Weibo. So they were able to connect and talk to each other. Uh, on a daily basis, and comment on the same case, follow the same people, and follow the same development uh, in the case. So one uh, w- uh, one example is that when uh, the Li trial actually uh, uh, opened uh, in 2011, uh, that day there were hundreds of uh, lawyers and law students actually standing in front of the courthouse. They couldn't get in because uh, most Chinese criminal trials. Uh, you cannot, uh, a random person cannot just get in. You, you have to have certain kind of permission to get in. So, but they just, hundreds of people sitting in, uh, standing in front of the courthouse, and including even some lawyers who actually flew from other provinces on their own expenses just to, just because they saw the case on Weibo, on, the so, on social media, and then they flew uh, to the site to support uh, a fellow a lawyer colleague. So, so that's something that the social media does. And after the Zhuang case, as we wrote about in Chapter 7, you start to see this online mobilization happening. Uh, lawyers started to use the Weibo at that time uh, to organize uh, what they call the so-called uh, the lawyer groups. Uh, they were sometimes, well, for example, there's a case in this province. They will post something online and then very quickly, a group of 10 lawyers or 20 lawyers, and uh, there was one case, even more than 50 lawyers, Will fly to the same location, and some lawyers would uh, serve as uh, the defense counsel for the defendants. Other lawyers would uh, standing in front of the courthouse, holding signs to protest. Other lawyers would take photos of, of uh, these things and post them on the social media. So there, uh, it, be, it become extremely uh, effective uh, for a little for a little while. Um, there were a series of cases they actually were able to uh, generate a, such a. Uh, Huge public public attention and public concern that the court and the police actually compromised. Uh, they they were uh they were willing to uh, to make concessions uh, to the lawyers. Um, so that leads to what uh, we call in the book uh, the lawyers themselves call it, uh, the diehard lawyering.
0: And so, um, in addition to Weibo, you also mentioned a couple of other apps like um, WeChat and Telegram that allow private group discussions. Is that still true? Are those are those of uh, uh, technical tools still available to avoid surveillance?
1: No, they're still available. Um, uh, WeChat and Telegram came later because Weibo was very popular uh, right. until I think about twenty fourteen, twenty fifteen. Um, but then WeChat almost replaced uh, Weibo uh, for two reasons. I think one reason is that you know um, WeChat was a is a more a powerful app. It does a lot of things. You can not only uh, you know chat with others uh, on WeChat, you can, you can uh, buy train tickets, you can uh, do a lot of things. It's kind of, a, uh, I think it's one generation more advanced than Facebook, Twitter, all these things. I mean, you could, it's, a, you can, it's a fully integrated app, you can do a lot of things on it. So it's uh, gained popularity. But also another reason is because I think by 2013, 2014, the Chinese government already started to be, be very cautious about Weibo because they realized Weibo got so popular so it actually generated a lot of uh, problems for the government. It's very easy for law, not just lawyers, but also petitioners, you know, other kind of uh, uh, people, a- activists uh, in Chinese society to organize themselves, feminists, for example, labor activists, uh, to organize themselves for, for social movement. So that became a public security concern. Um, so so I think the government made a series of effort to limit uh, what you can say and what you can do on Weibo. Um, so that that leads to the decline of Weibo's popularity. And WeChat, but on the other hand, cannot really replace uh, Weibo because it's not a public platform. It's more like a um, messaging. It's like WhatsApp, you know, like WhatsApp, but more with more functions. So so it, the discussions on WeChat is not like Weibo. Anybody can can see them. You, only your friends, like Facebook, your friends can can see the discussions, uh, you can have uh, group discussions, you can include hundreds of people, but it's not uh, entirely public. So, so the dynamics uh, became very different. And then uh, uh, very quickly, uh, especially the humorized rights lawyers, people who do more sensitive work realize WeChat is not entirely safe because uh, it's a Chinese app, so run by a Chinese company. So the government uh, can easily, if they want to, uh, monitor uh, the WeChat discussions among these lawyers or other activists. So that's why some activists started to use Telegram, the Russian uh, app, and some other apps. And I, I recently uh, uh, was told by activists in China that uh, even Telegram, they stopped using it, uh, partly because it was, I think, Telegram was blocked from China. You have to use a VPN to, to access it. So they, they keep changing the uh, the apps they use. Now there are some even newer apps, I, I, I don't even remember, <laughs> they told me uh, that they, they use. So they have to constantly avoid uh, monitoring and surveillance.
0: And so in 2015, uh, in the summer, in July, there was a crackdown uh, widespread. Over 200 lawyers, I believe, were detained. Um, and this was in regard to a particular case, I believe. Uh, can you explain the background for the Wang, Wang Yu case?
1: Yeah, Wang Yu case. Uh, yes. So the now uh, people usually call this crackdown the... 709 crackdown, because it happened in July 9th, on July 9, uh, 2015. So the background of the case uh, is precisely as I was saying earlier, that uh, by that time, 2013, 2014, uh, this kind of collective action among lawyers uh, using social media uh, became very popular. And then what happened is that um, some of these uh, uh, diehard lawyers—they call them die diehard lawyers uh, because they really push the procedure to the limit. They use a lot of performances, uh, performance art, to actually to, uh, to to gain attention on social media. Uh, so these strategies were started to be used by some some humorized activists. So some lawyers doing humorized work, including Wang Yu, this woman, um, who you know spend a lot of their time defending for other activists. And very vulnerable population, for example, the feminist uh, activists. Wang Yu was the defender for the feminist five. Uh, their five feminists were uh, detained by the Ch- Chinese authorities in, the, uh, in March 2015, I believe. Um, so Wang Yu was their uh, lawyer. And then but Wang Yu and some other human rights lawyers also defend for Falun Gong practitioners, for uh, Christian house churches, church members, and some very sensitive uh, cases from the government's point of view. And they start to use similar strategy uh, in their cases. For example, they would uh, sometimes fly to a place and you know uh, orchestrate a hunger strike uh, in front of the courthouse, and then you know take photos, post on the social media. Sometimes even uh, doing the protest together with petitioners and some other uh, very sensitive population uh, from the government point of view. So because of that, I think. That's the background when the July 9th crackdown happened. And the way it happened is that Wang Yu, this uh, female lawyer, um, on July 8th, uh, 2015, she uh, drove her husband and son to the Beijing Capital Airport because her son was supposed to go to Australia for high school. So uh, she dropped off her husband and son in the airport. She returned to her apartment uh, in Beijing uh, by herself. And then in the middle of the night, some of her friends uh, got a message from her saying, you know the uh, electricity and the internet in my in my apartment was cut off, and then you know a, a while later another message saying from her saying that somebody was trying to get into my home, and then all communication with her just went dead. And the next morning, it turned out that you know Wang Yu was taken by the police, um, and detained, and eventually uh, went through the criminal process. Um, and after that, within a within the week, uh, there were more than 200 lawyers all over China. It was a, a well, very well-planned crackdown. All over China, who used to participate in some of these uh, uh, diehard lawyering activities, were taken into questioning by the police. Uh, many of them were taken into questioning, briefly detained, but then released uh, within 24 hours or 48 hours. But there were uh, at least a dozen of them were uh, mostly lawyers doing more politically sensitive cases were uh, detained for a very long time. So, so some of lawyers were just taken, disappeared uh, for six months, and then, then all of a sudden, uh, declare, okay, this lawyer is being uh, criminally charged. And some of the lawyers, uh, after six, uh, six months, the next year, uh, 2016, even would put on TV to make t- uh televised confessions for their crimes, even before they went through the criminal process. So this, uh, the so-called 709 crackdown was a big blow for the uh, for the lawyer activism in China, because it it uh, it was almost like a nu- nuclear attack on the core members of the human rights bar in China. Many of the bravest and most uh, active human rights lawyers victims, became victims of this uh, crackdown, and uh, many of them were sentenced, were released on bail. Uh, I think I believe at, at least a couple of them were still in the criminal process uh, even today. So that's a, actually a great source of uh, uh, distress for me and my co-author Professor Halliday because um, that was precisely the time we were finishing the book manuscript and we interviewed some of these lawyers. I cannot tell you who because you know we have to protect uh, their identities. But you know some of the, these lawyers were our informants, and then as we were finishing the book we have to watch them, you know, suffer. And as our book came out, I mean, they were being uh, sentenced criminally. And um, I I feel, I don't know how I feel about it because after our our book uh, was published, uh, it generated some media attention, uh, including some popular media like New York times, like the New York review of books, but uh, partially because of the, you know, the suffering of the lawyers, that suffered in this crackdown.
0: Do you know what has happened? At the time you published this, you weren't sure of Wang Yu's fate herself. Do you know what's happened to her since then?
1: Oh, yes. Since then, uh, now, I think she was, uh, she made a televised confession. Basically, uh, she, she was put on state TV uh, broadcasts across the country. basically apologized for what she did, you know, in these uh, sensitive cases. And then after that, she was released on bail. Uh, so, uh, which means that she could be arrested again, you know, anytime. And I mean, there's mm-hmm. really no period of this bail. And then she, after that, she was she 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 used to live in Beijing, but she she was not a local resident. Her residency was in Inner Mongolia, her hometown. So after that, uh, she was released. She was uh, kicked out of Beijing. She was sent back to her uh, hometown. And uh, and then very little uh, has been heard about her since then. I think she has been either voluntarily kept a low profile or you know, being surrounded by state security. She couldn't really make her voice heard. Uh, but she did, uh, Wang Yu did win one of the uh, prizes, I think uh, given uh, by the American Bar Association for her uh, human activism uh, around the same time.
0: Well, you and your uh, co-author began this book with a reference to an event in the 1730s in France. Mm-hmm with regard to a order of barristers, a group of lawyers in Paris and their strike against some of the um, the way that justice was meted out in the Parisian courts. And you had noted, you quote, that the crown feared an independent little republic at the heart of the state, uh, thereby underlining how, important lawyers are in the society, but also how they can pose an organized, articulate threat to an authoritarian regime. And so I want to end with asking you, do you think that that little independent republic was feared on the part of Xi Jinping in 2015 and that nuclear strike, as you describe it, was effective? Are you pessimistic about not only the rights of lawyers and their clients, but also the trends in in China today and what that means for the citizenry? Or are you optimistic?
1: I am not entirely pessimistic. Of course, uh, it was heartbroken, you know, when uh, things like the uh, July 9th crackdown happened. Uh, But on the other hand, I mean, this is precisely the reason we started the book. Of course, when we started the book, uh, we... Uh, we we the, the crackdown already happened, but we wasn't sure about its consequences. We start a book with a uh, what happened in uh, in France under the old regime, precisely because we wanted the readers of the book to think about it uh, and to realize that what's happening in today's China is not unique to China. Because if you look at the comparative uh, history of the legal profession across the world, you see very similar struggles of lawyers against all kinds of authoritarian regimes, uh, you know, in Europe, in Latin America, in other parts of East Asia, in South Korea, in Taiwan, for example, not so long ago. Um, and some of these struggles were successful, some of these struggles were not. But nevertheless, you always find lawyers fighting against arbitrary state power. Not all lawyers would do that, but they're always a critical mass of lawyers would do that because. Fundamentally, this is a, there are two reasons I'm not entirely pessimistic. The first reason is that lawyers are not accountants. This is very important because there's always the political side in the legal profession. You know that's part of their uh, mission. You know lawyers always do their work between market and state. Some lawyers serve the market, serve the economy. Other lawyers will, you know, protect rights. And then fight against arbitrary state power. So this is just the nature of the legal profession. And the second reason I'm not being entirely pessimistic is because um, if you look at the demography of the Chinese legal profession, it's not totally on the government side, because um, as, as I mentioned, just in the process of uh, researching and writing this book, the ten years from 2005 to 2015, uh, in 2005, China probably had about 100 and 20 or 130,000 lawyers. And by 2015, China had almost 300,000 lawyers. It more than doubled. So if you think about it, during the period, even today, it's the same. Every year, there are at least 20,000, sometimes 30,000 new lawyers joining the Chinese bar. And let's do a very conservative estimate. Let's say 1% of these new lawyers every year will turn political, become political activists. That's at least 200 or 300 people. And let's imagine half of them were disbarred or put to prison by the government. There's still at least 100 lawyers left. And that's more than the total number of uh, human rights lawyers in China 10 years ago. So in other words, they will always be, although, as I said, there's this big blow, uh, almost a nuclear attack on the core of the uh, lawyer activism in China uh, two or three years ago under Xi Jinping. But uh, if you look at the long term, I think there will be always be new blood coming into the profession, uh, pursuing similar causes. And even if they cannot, in the short term, do uh humanized work as they did uh, five years ago, because the political environment has turned so hostile, they can still pursue activism in some gray areas, like feminism, like labor rights, like environmentalism. You know, there are a lot like LGBT rights more recently. There a lot of other uh, areas that's not as uh, sensitive as human rights, but can actually uh, allow lawyers some space and some liberty to uh, pursue their mobilization and fight uh, against the authoritarian regime. So I think uh, in the short term, there will be a lot of difficulties, but I'm actually on the more optimistic uh, side uh, in the long term.
0: The book is Criminal Defense in China, The Politics of Lawyers at Work. We've been joined today by Sada Liu, who co-authored the book with Terence Halliday. Sada, thank you for joining us on New Books in Law podcast. Thank
1: you, Ian, for the opportunity.